Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Mary, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tara, for having me on. So let's see, I've known you for what, three years, something like that? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So we met when um, you were selected to join the Food and Beverage Association of Wisconsin's Accelerator. Remember? Yeah, it was pivotal. Yeah. Definitely changed my mind about how to run a business. Oh, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, we do these programs and we think we have an impact, but it's always great to hear when people feel that they've had a big, feel like the program had a big impact. Well, running a business means you're taking a risk. Kind of know that going in. Um, I think speaking with you and Fab made me a lot more comfortable with the risk. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You've got to kind of find your comfort zone there. Yeah. And it, you'll only be more effective once you do. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was really kind of the aha moment mm. from that. Isn't that interesting? Exercise. It's interesting just because, um, yeah, it, it's such a so interesting to see how different participants in the same process take different things away from it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so let's go back to when you started Top Note Tonic and um, tell our listeners what way back when what you thought you were going to be doing. Well, I thought I was going to be making beer, <laughs> not mixers, but. Um... You know, I, I got into the business come, kind of on my peak of where I was at in terms of my brewing industry business. I was um, I was a, kind of a career operations person in breweries and worked for a small period of time with Miller Coors more in a business operations capacity, which opened my eyes more to the broader scope of sales, marketing, distribution, how a product goes from... R and D and and what you know maybe what a brewer or someone within the brewing staff really thinks is cool to getting into consumers' hands and into their mouths and you know that was that was that process was exciting I, I kind of knew a little bit about the R and D process but seeing consumers' reactions has really got me geeked up on doing my own product I had long considered making beer on. Uh, on the side and maybe starting a brewery with some friends. Um, we spoke about it for a good year and a half and um, kind of went away from the concept we were thinking of just because the industry itself is getting kind of crowded. But um, as I was playing around thinking about beer, I got into making some more of an herbal concoction and syrup. And uh, lo and behold, I, I, I was on to something very old school, tonic, bitter soda, um, this concept that in Europe has been taking off for a while um, as, a, as a broader, uh, much more mainstream mixer, as well as a soft drink. So I thought it might, might be good timing to maybe pivot into that world of soft drinks. Um, so that top note was started really out of a brainchild of maybe doing something herbal and alcohol and went into the non-alcohol space that's more adjacent to alcohol and um, leading into a mixer category that we see is an incredible category to be in right now, very mm-hmm. dynamic and uh, meeting new players. Right. So great place to be. Right. And and so did you ever make beer or was that just not, that was just conceptual back then? It was conceptual. We never went into business. We were talking about it, but um, no, never, never went for the brewery. Mm-hmm. I, I still help breweries quite a bit, uh, still help them with quality and operations, but mm-hmm. I'm, and, and especially with R&D and, and the world of introducing new brands, there's always risk involved with that. And I think having, um, just having that sense of the risk you're taking and how to build a good product that uh, you reduce those risks is, I think, very helpful. Just launching into a brand new, brand new world. Um, there's less risk in soft drinks, but there's still risk. 
and we're keen on quality. We're very keen on the flavor and our flavor standing out. Right, right. So when you were doing um, uh, quality work um, for the beer companies, um, were you involved in their new product development at all, or was it later yeah, in operations? I was at Goose Island. Um, I worked mm. for Goose Island in Chicago for years, and after that I left to go to Miller Coors. And at Miller, I was more of an operation um, level, you know, more of the management. Mm-hmm not directly involved with the R&D. They had a whole staff of doing technical brewing. I, uh, I of course, understood what they were doing and kind of had to translate that world to the sales and marketing team in my last role there. The R&D I did with Goose was really direct, you know, mm-hmm. right there in the brewery with the brewers and kind of mitigating risks as we were doing the new new development. Um, I, I don't, I still don't think enough breweries do that. Um, where they really bring in the risk management side, mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're introducing a lot of risks. And I think, unfortunately, not to go down, uh, not to go into another another world, another category. But I do think the craft brewers have to be very cognizant of what they're doing out there. Right, and they know that. Mm-hmm. They know that. Well, what's interesting to me about this is usually um, entrepreneurs are the most risk-taking group on the planet, and it sounds like you are somebody who came out of a risk mitigation world, right? So it's such a different mindset, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and that's the interesting thing kind of about this career change that I decided to make. Um, You know, we started talking about risk. The whole thing is a risk, Um, but I think that quality training Mm -hmm. let me understand when you take you know, a calculated risk on things and when you don't. Um, and it, it really kind of helps you kind of wrap your arms around what is calculated and what isn't. Um, that helps a lot, you know. Just risk management, risk mitigation helps you a ton when you're talking about business and just understanding what are what are the potential losses here, what am I risking, what are the unknowns. Um, right. Have, it, have more of a process around it. Than yeah. Without yeah. I, I was in a um, CEO group when I was running Tara's Way, and one of, my, um, one of the other CEOs in the group said that he thought that um, the role of an entrepreneur is to take calculated risks. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And when, you, when I finally became comfortable with that, that this is a calculated risk, that I, I, I have, um, you know, I, I believe in the product and never stop believing in the product kind of thing. Um, when you believe that strongly in a product and you, you know that you not only have the passion, but you have the perseverance to keep it going, um, it, it becomes a calculated risk. Yes, you can still, you know, have issues and things that happen that weren't, you know, completely out of your control. Um, but that's um, the going at it, knowing that you've got so much uh, influence control over the things that you need to is really important. Right, right. So when you started, you were doing syrups, right? Yeah, so we had a couple ways to go about getting started in the soft drink business. It's um, it's the kind of world right now that, of course, there's very large players, and they're very established in their processes and logistics and sales and marketing. is all there, right? So, um, But coming out of the craft beer industry, I knew there's ways to disrupt that. And there were other people already disrupting in soft beverage. Um, a lot of the on-premise bars and restaurants were just foregoing buying soft drinks and making their own. Um, when you start to see that happen at, a, at that level, the bar and restaurant level, where they're no longer purchasing a product, they're, they're kind of finding their way around it, um, you know that there's something happening in terms of the consumer demand or what, what maybe those influencers want to in, um, push on to the consumers. Um, so seeing that some bars and restaurants were already making syrups, there were already some um, tonic syrups in the market that were commercialized. Uh, we decided to go a smaller route. It's a little bit more of a niche route and start that way. We all knew uh, long in that we were going to become a ready-to-drink, already mixed sparkling tonic um, and ginger beer mixer, um, but it just we had to start somewhere. We had we wanted to get our brand out there. We wanted to get a beat on the consumer and learn a little bit um, with a lot less risk. 
there was that risk mitigation, um, you know, the risk was was um, much more minimal. Right. That way. And it was a great way for us to kind of um, cut our teeth a little bit and understand that world because I was, I knew where I had strengths and I certainly knew where I had weaknesses too. So that, that world, um, did that allow you to do some flavor experimentation and just product kind of exploration? Yeah, um, it, it did. It allowed me to, to learn, you know, it, 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 it would, it's much longer of maybe a, a learning cycle than some businesses want to take. We were in tariffs for two, two and a half years before we had our ready-to-drink on the market. Um, and we still have syrups out there. People are still buying them. But there's, uh, there was an opportunity to not only learn about the flavors I like, but maybe the flavors that other consumers might be looking for. Um, we ended up going into the ready-to-drink model with quite a bit of information on what bars um, and consumers were looking for. So we, we definitely used that opportunity in syrup to play around a bit. We've got two flavors and syrups that we've not yet launched and ready to drink. We hope to someday. Um, but we want to, you know, kind of build a brand yet first. So there's, there is definitely a learning curve that we went through with the syrup. And not a lot of products have that opportunity, I don't think. Yeah. From, you know, a fairly small niche learning world to one that, um, that you want to launch in a much more broader mainstream capacity. Right. And I think that's really valuable because if you had just gone right to ready to drink, if you think about all the labels and packaging and boxes and having to do the SKUs and then change them, this was actually a wonderful opportunity for you to do experimentation. Oh, definitely. And um, before we even came out with the ready to drink, we were in the bag and box business. So we commercialized... um, a little earlier with a, um, a product line that is dedicated to the bars and restaurants so we could learn even more, make sure our flavors were kind of spot on, there wasn't anything strange about them. You know, we're in a very mainstream market in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin, and you can learn a lot about what sticks out as way too innovative right. <laughs> here. Um, and not that we don't mind being an innovative company. We want to be known as, as a, an innovative company, but we also want to be known for quality. And those two things sometimes I think can get mushed up in a consumer's mind. They sometimes um, get confused by innovation and don't see it as quality or vice versa. So we wanted to uh, go in and, and make sure we were being seen as the, a very high-quality company right. as well as an innovative company. And you um, decided very early on that you were going to manufacture your own products. Yeah. Um, we uh, manufacture in terms of um, create design, yes. Um, not, not farm that out. A lot of software companies do that. We, we did not want to do that. We wanted to have full control over, over our flavors, and we do. We own our, we fully own our IP. Um, that's unusual on its own. But the other thing that I knew we could do and you do very well because of my operations background was um, use co-packers uh, or co-manufacturers that who actually do the manufacturing, the, the putting the, the flavors and the, and the syrups and everything into a bottle and making it into the marketable package. Um, a lot of brewers get stuck uh, kind of putting a lot of money into into stainless steel, as you like to say, Tara. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a great world to be in. It's fun, but it's also engineering heavy. It's very operations heavy. And sometimes you lose um, sight of the sales and marketing side. And really what we've, what we've designed this to be is a very sales and marketing focused company with the operations side supporting it, um, which ultimately all companies are. <laughs> right. You do, um, do you make your syrups, though, in your facility, or is that just an R&D facility these days? It's just, now we still hand-make syrups. Any hand-bottled hand syrups are still hand-cast there. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, a lot of our R&D is done there. Mm-hmm. So we still start out as kind of a handmade syrup with real herbs and spices and see what we want to go with in terms of flavor. And then we, um, we've got a whole list now of flavor companies that we work with that have all-natural extracts uh, 
that are super high quality that we work with and just figure out a way to match it and, and create that flavor on our own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And was it hard to find a co-packer? A little bit. There, It's not a... There's an association for co-packers, but it's not something that they market, you know, really mm-hmm. strongly. Um, it was through another small beverage company that I learned uh, about this co-packer, and they happened to be getting a bottle in from Europe that we quite like. Um, hmm. So there was a little bit of knowing the cost involved if I wanted a unique bottle and going into a co-packer that didn't run it. Um there was a lot of cost savings there going with one that already ran the bottle, already had to change parts, and also um, was bringing the bottle in for us. We don't have to inventory the bottle. So there is a huge cost savings there. And um, once we kind of struck all of that together, we stopped kind of looking. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> I bet. And, and not only that, they're great people to work with. Right. And and did they have big min- minimum runs, or was that not so much an issue for you? No, they don't. That was the other winning part of, of working with this company. There are smaller coat packers out there. They're not easy to find. Um, but when you strike one and they're, they tend to have hit, you know, they hit all the criteria that you're looking for, um, it makes the choice pretty easy. But they have fairly small runs, um, very flexible in terms of what they do. Uh, they do charges a lot to do a trial run. So those are, those are great um, those were great criteria that they really nailed. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you're really lucky to have found a good partner. Yes, and they are a partner, and they see themselves as that, and they are um, they're wonderful. Yeah, they're really great guys. Cool. All right, um, now you're in a ready-to-drink package. Can you talk to me a bit about all your branding work along the way? All the branding work that is uh, along the way and still happening. Um, we started um, We started out just speaking with uh, a gentleman that came out of the, the wine and spirits industry, starting striking out on his own to do um, a, a branded uh, branding element and start working more with entrepreneurial companies. Um, so he gave us a fairly decent deal. He was a designer. And... Um, designed our, our logo, designed our packaging, our initial packaging. And he worked on a process in which he gave us about five or six different concepts. And the one that really stuck, um, you know, was the, almost the first one we saw. So um, I do think it's important that you spend the time not only thinking of a name, <laughs> a name that really makes you extremely happy every time you say it, and um, but also, you know, finding a, a, a personality to the logo that also um, feels right and feels strong, feels um, maybe even bigger than you are. That would That's always been my recommendation to new entrepreneurs is love your brand name and love how you've designed it from the start because it's going to be with you for quite a while. And you don't want to be stuck kind of undoing clip art. Um, you really want to spend some time and money there. And do you know... It's who, important. Yeah, it is important. And do you know um, who your target consumer is? Yeah, our target consumer was um, someone that uh, has fairly been well-traveled. It's not an age range, but um, really be fairly broad age range. But the, the well-traveled piece was part of it. They had to have an understanding of more of a European concept of food and beverage. Um, our logo and everything about our branding is um, quite European in mindset and for a reason because it's, it's, we've designed this to be more culinary um, uh, more culinary inspired soft drinks I, su- I suppose I could say um, or drinks that, that go well with not only good spirits but also as part of a, a whole meal um, so yeah we had a consumer very much targeted. They had to be well-traveled, and they had to be um, kind of food and beverage nerds, for lack of a better word, um, (laughs) that really just liked exploring and um, understood the the breadth of flavor. There's so much out there in terms of flavor that we tend to not, we tend to forget about, but um, savory, sour, and bitter are three that I think um, 
the U.S. market is really starting to put their arms around and understand in all parts of the rest of the world. Those are well-loved and, and cherished parts of the plate, you know, mm-hmm. um, because they really make the whole experience that much more enticing. So your, your, um, your tonics, and mix, they're not just mixers, right? You design them so people can drink them as kind of a soft drink, right? Yeah, they do. They do tend to have uh, some crossover appeal. They're, um, the the beverage market isn't such a, a stir right now because diet sodas, um, dying. Um, people aren't buying Coca Cola. They're not really introducing themselves to Coke like or cola flavored products um, as young young children. Mm-hmm. Um, they're introducing younger kids now to just seltzer, which is great because that's very European. Right, right. <laughs> I'm all into that. We start out with this very kind of blank palette um, that you can build um, a much better, interesting taste and drink off of. Um, even the idea of an aperitivo or aperitif occasion, just where you start out slow and maybe with something a little more palate cleansing, is something that the U.S. is, is, is um, actually saying, that's a great idea. You know, hmm. you don't need to start out with, um, with you know, uh, a very high-proof cocktail to, to start the meal. Um, so mixers play in all of that. They play in this, the space of maybe just being a little slightly less sweet, um, you know, soft beverage. And then they also move into that lower-proof um, highball cocktail that is usually great kind of daytime drinking or, you know, pre-dinner occasion. Right. So when you're doing a, a, a mixer like this, is your primary channel of distribution retail grocery or is it liquor stores? What are you, what are you experiencing? Well, um, it's about a third, a third, a third. Our, our on-premise business is pretty strong right now because of our bag and box mm. portfolio. And that's just local. Um, we've not really moved that too strongly to other states, although um, we've got a couple great customers coming on right now in Chicago, um, but the, the the we see that you know eventually becoming more of a, a thirty to twenty percent of our business. Well, the retail side, um, mostly especially grocery, um, probably that's going to be another that's about fifty percent, thirty percent in liquor, and then the rest of it on bag and box. So uh, it's it's a mix. Um, it's definitely mixed to almost a third, a third, a third right now, but we're we're moving very strongly into specialty grocery. Right. That's where the that's where the bulk of the business will be. And you won an award this year, didn't you, from the specialty foods folks? Yeah, the specialty food association. Um, you know, it was maybe two weeks after we got our product actually in our warehouse, um, <laughs> <laughs> and we won a Sophie Award, and that's. Uh, that was very unexpected, and it was welcome news for sure. It, um, it, it's helped validate that our, our product is standout, it's innovative, and it tastes good, which is, you know, what we want. What we right. Um, was it at the show? Is that at Fancy Food, or was that just the Sophie, or is that separate? Um, it's Part of the shows, they definitely highlight their Sophie winners, but the, the award ceremony takes place separately. Mm. Um, and it's actually announced live on, on a podcast and, and web, webcast. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it kind of came across as an email. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so how did they find, did you submit to, to, that, to a contest to win that, or how does that work? Yeah. You have to submit your product. Um, you know, they get over 3,000 products in turf. Holy cow. That's terrific. Yeah. yeah. Not in our category alone, but that's probably the total. Um, what category, category did they put you in? We were in um, beverage mixers. Ah, uh, they have a beverage mixer category. Interesting. A, and it's a new category. So we, um, we got lucky in terms of them expanding soft drinks into beverage mixers because it is a pretty specific thing. Um, that you're that you're tasting, you're tasting something that, on its own, um, you know, has a has a specific segment of consumer that may like, but also expecting it to be 
kind of cut with some alcohol or uh, amended with alcohol. That's a that's a very different styling of a beverage, anyway. Right, and um, that the fact that they created a whole new category for it says something about the category that you're in. Yeah, there were a lot of new products um, in that space just in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were, a lot of them were, many of them still are in the syrup form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're one of a handful that are coming out with um, through you know sparkling tonic. Mm-hmm. Tonic was um, the the one of the strongest growing soft drink categories in Europe for several years in a row in terms of new new introductions to um, new products coming into the market, and that to me shows that there's there's room here. There's lots of room. There's need and desire. I think. Um, the more we get out there, that, that we recognize people had no idea this this little this little slim category on the beverage shelf could be something that could be much broader, much more diverse. Well, and the beverage category is huge, so a little slim portion of it could actually be quite big. Right. Yeah. 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 No, no doubt. And you know, it, my um, my cheese experience tells me that a lot of um, new ideas in food come here from Europe. So this seems to be consistent with that. Yeah, well, I think it kind of goes back and forth. The Europeans certainly influence us, and then we influence back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, craft beer is a good good showing of that. Mm-hmm. Brewers came back from Europe with ideas of pale ales and bringing back these these strange, you know old European models of, of what beer was um, and just became mainstream, and now we're absolutely influenced. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like in, in chatting with you that that y- you, like other um, small um, food and beverage clients I have, are starting to get interest from very large accounts. Yeah. And- we have the interest from a fairly large retailer right now that could completely change our company. But these retailers are they're looking for um, ways to stand out so that they are innovative, too. Um, everyone has the same mainstream product from the same large consumer product goods companies on the shelf. And to stand out as a retailer, um, retailers are also uh, looking to bring in fresh face and show that they're they're uh, thinking ahead. Mm-hmm. You know, when I launched Tara's Way, I tell people that at the time, now that's a, it was clearly a whey protein destined for the natural category. And at the time, really the only way to be build a national brand was to be in Whole Foods. And now it just seems like there's so many different paths for small brands to do that. I think that's changing for sure. I mean, the whole food market itself is, is um, obviously in a, in a changed mode right now. Um, we, whole Foods is still a very strong retailer for us um, in, in terms of um, navigating that world as it's changing. That's been a challenge. But, um, yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's definitely changing, and it's changing in a way that's good because there's not just Whole Foods. There's a lot of regional players that um, are are um, kind of a good way to jump around the country and places that you know you'll be strong um, before you go more onto a national level. Um, because Whole Foods, when you think about it, yeah, they've got you know they're very heavily penetrated in certain parts of the country and not so much in others. And, and really, that's how um, that's how a small brand has to think. Where do, where do you want to go deep, and what parts of the country are going to most support you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so and, and maybe just play there. Yeah, play stronger re- regional, especially food um, players there, and there's a lot of those. They're, they're 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 coming up too. So where what parts of the country do you do the best in? Um, well, we're not everywhere yet. <laughs> right, understood. But as it just we're dribbled and drabbled everywhere. Right, good, but, you're um, kind of at that know, stage. Where we want to be is um, Northern California, Pacific Northwest. Uh, that's where we're looking for our next next strong points of distribution. Um, 
And we're also looking at kind of the Mid-South, which is uh, an unusual placement, but uh, D.C. and uh, kind of south of there, there's a lot of good cocktailing that, that goes on, and they mm. drink a lot of tonics. So we know where we could be very strong without having to hit really, really large, large you know, um, areas of the country. It is interesting, isn't it? Like, like I remember talking to Martha's Pimento Cheese, talking to Martha about the fact that her biggest market was going to be in Texas and Louisiana, and who knew, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think it is an important thing to realize that your products, may, it, you know, it, it probably isn't Wisconsin, and, and where you're strong is where people drink cocktails, right, in your case. Yeah, and, and the, the specific style of cocktails that we cater to, um, being not necessarily the coupe, uh, Manhattan, you know, mm. um, style, um, but more of a, uh, just a sparkling highball. Um, mm-hmm. and it's funny, those are not, like, knowing the history, it, it makes complete sense, but they're, they're strong in areas of the country where there's a lot of boating and sailing and, and places where there's water. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's Is that because it's kind of... Know. A refreshing cocktail. Yeah, and there's a lot of history there. Mm. You know, sailors used to drink gin and tonics and, and mm. um, dark and stormies, and you know this is the old school kind of beverage that's stuck around with the culture. So, how fascinating is that? Yeah. You know, yeah, and they put the lemon in for the scurvy, and right, lime. correct, but lime. <laughs> is it lime? Okay. It's lime. I was close. You were close. It's <laughs> close. Gin and tonic, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah the officers drank the gin and tonic. So. All right. So, so the yeah, the officers, right? And and that's is there is that whole thing about malaria and quinine true? Yeah. Yes. There is a lot of history with with quinine and medicinals and botanicals in our beverage. You know, I mean that. Coca-Cola used to be a botanical beverage. Isn't that crazy um, to think was, about it that? It was an elixir. It was a tonic. It was something that lifted you, you know. Um, it was mineral water with flavor is what it was. And, yeah, we, we've kind of forgotten the verbal background of our drinks, but um, certainly tonic has a long history of of being more of a medicine. And it worked. Yeah, absolutely worked. I'm sure it tasted different. <laughs> right. Right. So do you have quinine in your tonic? Yeah, there's quinine in it. It's a regulated substance, so we have to watch what, how much we use. And mm. but, uh, hmm. We and also it... use another bitter. We use a gentian root, which is known as a nice aperitivo, kind of settle the stomach, the stomach ready for digestion kind of bitter. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly some botanical science and herbal science going on in what we've done. That's that's long been the story of soft drinks. We just forgot. It. Forgot it. Right, boy. I I who knew? Right. There's and there's so much um, marketing potential in all of that. Right. People who are foodies and curious about food. Right. Well, it's too bad the word crush has been used, but you know, crush being a a soft drink that we all know. But that that was a crush was simply you walk into a soda fountain and you ask for a crush and maybe a strawberry crush and they crush strawberries and put mineral water on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, huh? Yeah. Simple. These simple ideas. Mm-hmm. So you're bringing a, a simple old product back into the market with, uh, what do I want to say, contemporized flavors. Does that sound fair? Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Wow. Um, there's a there is a contemporary way of thinking about some of these older concepts that have um, been somewhat forgotten, but not for not forgotten for really any reason other than you know prohibition and things that got in the way. But mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I found it fascinating when I was talking to some of the folks that make bitter liqueur, um, Campari, Aperol, these you know red liqueurs that we've been drinking here in America for, you know, uh, not, uh, several several decades at least. And um, 
it went out of favor, actually, in the 80s. People still liked the bitter characters of those drinks, but it went out of favor because of the red color. Oh, no. The red scare. Oh, you know? no. Yeah. So, you know, the flavor, though, um, was desired. Hmm. Um, and it, it is really striking how we see that as a trend where I'll be tasting at a, at a demo table and um, there's, almost a, there's almost a segment of the market in terms of age that seems to be missing, but there's a 65 and old just love bitter, and they miss it. And they, they you know, they, they, were, they used to drink the Campari and soda and the Aperol Fritz, and now they're looking for, they're so thrilled to find a bitter lemon, you know. Mm. Um, it, it, it kind of went out of favor because of that one, you know, one thing that happened in the 80s, um, and there's a segment, I think, within our demographic that isn't as keen on bitter yet, but they're getting there. Yeah. So how? So do you demo when you're in stores? Is that your main promotional vehicle when, you're in, when you go into a store, or what seems to work? Yeah, we do like to demo. The tonic is difficult to demo because people see it as a mixer. And right. You're supposed to drink with gin, but... Because our flavor is so strong um, on its own, it can stand up on its own. Um, it's clean. Mm-hmm. comes off with a very clean flavor. People are very, um, I think, pleasantly surprised. When you say they're tonics, they are a little bitter, they'll drink them and just say, wow, but this is a really good one. You right. Know? So in a way, it helps us because people are expecting a, a bad experience and get a great one. Um, it's, it is a great way to get people... Um, you know, converted into something that's very different. We're asking people to spend, you know, a buck or two, a buck fifty a drink when they're used to spending dimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's, that's a mindset change that we have to make. So they have to see it as a value. And just you speaking about it, selling it, and being enthusiastic about it always helps. Mm-hmm. Um, something we can control within this market within Chicago when we're out further. Um, we're looking at paying for demos, and we know that's a great way to create the brand. But I think we're also taking the play from some of the social media pounds that are out there that are better at it than us. But we know that there's um, other ways to reach consumers, um, and, and the influencer market is, is a way to do it. Um, right, because so. you do have this restaurant market, and that can be really significant um, for brands that have that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, not only restaurants, but um, it's funny. There's this this whole cat, this whole style of, of especially food store, as you were saying, the grocery market's changing, where they're putting you know Whole Foods, they're putting bars. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. That's a great place to be too. Right. Take um, your take your <laughs> first date at a Whole Foods. Yeah, and and but you know they're they're there right there to stop. So you are almost demoing um, all the time um, at at those sorts of places. Right, right. That's that's got to be terrific for you because you are trying to introduce. Uh, well, it's not really a new category, but it is. It's an old category that's been gone for a while, right? So it right. is almost like a new category now. Yeah, or it's a premium. Mm-hmm. I think the category that we're in has commoditized itself to a point where it's, there's no value add to the consumer, and we're we're bringing the value back. So, yeah, it's almost like starting a new category again, mm-hmm. putting the premium spin on something that um, needed it. Right. So when you started all this, did you um, – did you have any idea how much money it was going to cost to really start and grow this business? No, Tara from Tara's Way told me it was going to cost <laughs> $1.2 million. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's exactly right. <laughs> I, I mean, I I didn't know you way back when, really, when you started. Um, so I, 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 by the time I saw you, I think you had a glimmer that, yeah, oh, yeah, this is going to cost way more money than we thought. Um, and, yeah, and, yeah. I was probably, uh, I was thinking if I raised $500,000, I would be sitting pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's funny how quickly that money can get consumed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, 
we're raising again, but we are, you know, very, very much know what we're going to put the money to and how it's going to help fuel the business. Um, you do learn as you go, and I think as I think if we raised 1.2 million out of the gate, I think we would have wasted it. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think about how um, small companies start, and you know, those that are out there that say, "Gee, I wish I had more money. I wish I had more money." You, the more money you have, it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna gonna be successful. Um, right, and you may not deploy it well because you haven't right. learned enough yet. And right. I, yeah, I mean, you you could have raised a whole bunch of money and poured it into syrups, no pun intended, and ended up that wow, you know, we got to pivot now completely. And yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And but you've had some um, some debt financing along the way, though. Little yeah, bit. We- we had we had real estate, my partner and I, so we were able to collateralize that mm-hmm. um, as part of this. And we have a little bit more wiggle room there, so mm-hmm. we can do more of that if we need to. Right. Uh, as it, we build inventory and as we get some um, larger customers and more cash flow, it'll be easier to do more of a straight up loan through the company. Right. Um, but that we're not, you know, we're not reaching for that right away. We're, mm-hmm. we're happy with doing some lines of credit and opening up uh, and building inventory where we can. And mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, I think your um, just how you've been growing your business um, from the financial point of view has been in, in a way a very smart way to have done it because um, now that you are going out to raise a bigger amount of equity or you're raising it into a company that has been through a lot of the early startup trying to figure things out stuff and you know now you're really in a place where you're just raising money to scale right yeah yep yeah yeah invest it right into kind of sales marketing distribution where it needs to be mm-hmm. um, and build some inventory mm-hmm. as we go. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Yeah. We, well, we're working with a good bank. I think having a good bank as a partner is super important. Um, oh, me too. Thank you for saying that because, yeah. yeah, I think people kind of flounder around trying to raise money in different ways early on, and I'm always saying, you know, you want to get a relationship with a senior lender as soon as you can. Yeah, I think I I don't re- I didn't realize how lucky I was where they were really wanting to learn more about our business and and find out more about us. And granted, we always wish we could raise more money through um, our debt financing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, and they've got their rules they have to follow. But um, we uh, I think you know having them really believe in it is super important. Mm-hmm. So well, we can- and yeah, and you guys did a really good job of making the case to them. Well, we're also able to now say, hey, we've got this large customer that may actually want us to build inventory kind of quickly. Can you can you help us make the case to them that they won't have to worry about that? You mm-hmm. know, and they're more than willing to write letters or do what they need to in order to help create your case from right. a financially strong company. Right. That's fantastic. That is exactly why I tell people they want a relationship, build a relationship with a senior lender. Because otherwise, you get those opportunities, and your only option is to go raise more equity. Yeah, or do some some crazy dumb money loaning thing where you're right. Crazy money. dumb loaning thing is exactly yeah. right. Well, and you're yeah, it's expensive money. There's money, but it might be really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is this has been um, a really. You know, maybe it didn't. It wasn't an intentional um, building up of the company and building up of the financial life of the company with it. But you've um, you've ended up in a really good place. Yeah, I will say that in the next six months when I've done my next round. Uh, <laughs> yeah, who knew when you started a food company that what you'd end up being really good at is money? I never thought that. That's but that's what has to happen, right? You have to learn. About you have to learn. To learn about. Mm-hmm. It's the one side of the business I knew nothing about, but I can I can definitely read a balance sheet and understand a P and L and look at cogs and just speak the language of business so much better. And I would say, in terms of a learning 
that's been the best for me. Um, I can walk in. I I know I could walk in and help any business now, and mm-hmm. that always feels um, not only empowering, but it just feels like I can, you know, my next step, step in life can be mm-hmm. to help others, and that's always great to learn a skill in which you can kind of squeeze a sponge later in life and help others with. Oh, right, right. Right. Well, that's certainly what I've been doing. It's super fun, as you know. Um, yeah. 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 No, it's it's terrific. And it, it's so fun to for me to interact with people like you over a period of time because that was not how you were talking when I first met you. Um, and that's not <laughs> <laughs> and that isn't uncommon. Right. It's it's typical of the people that I work with. And and it's really fun to watch people evolve over time. I, I just talked to a client who's been a client for, oh, I don't know, five years or something, quite a long time. And it's a farm, it just happens to be a farm client. And he said, yep, this is my year to work on my balance sheet. And I laughed because I said, when I first met you, you didn't even know what that thing was. <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah, certainly wasn't well, up to date. Yeah. You surround yourself with people that, that want to help you, mm-hmm. and, and you know whether or not they they know it, they end up helping you quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not knowing that stuff makes you a much weaker business person. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and especially now when you're trying to raise money, you can instill confidence in investors that you actually know the money side of your business. Right. Yeah. Right. It's yeah, really knowing, knowing break even and knowing you know where you need to be in the next um, six months and mm-hmm. the next twelve months and how you're going to get there. Um, it's something I think every entrepreneur knows that they know want to know. Right. <laughs> it's somewhat overwhelming, but it, you know I I always just say just take time, just keep letting it soak in, keep going after the information and, mm-hmm. and letting it soak. That it all will build into a story eventually. <laughs> right, right. And the sooner the you know, the better, right? I I yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you do it once, you're able to you're able to certainly come back and you know, I uh, a person on our board has done three beverage businesses. Um, you know, very helpful, insightful person because he's he's done it three times. But right. he also he also says, you know, um, the the learning still have to happen. Um, and I think he knows more than anyone that um, you will, even if you have the experience, you're gonna you're going to find out very quickly what doesn't work and what does. And putting the money to what does is your role, your job. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and every company is a little different. I mean, having so having an advisory board is really great and then having somebody who's done this three times on it is even better right Mm -hmm. yeah 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 so what's what's coming up for top note well uh we're gonna scale in 2018 Mm -hmm. we're gonna get into at least um three new markets Mm -hmm. and um just like i said get into new distribution and grow the business um we are talking to a fairly large uh, regional um, or actually a large national uh, grocery um, channel, and we'll see how that goes. Um, we can work that on a regional scale as a start. And we're going um, to work our way into some of the best bars and restaurants across the country. So you'll hear more about Top Note, a very short window. <laughs> Yeah, well, what fun. I mean, I just, I love your mixers. They are, they are wonderful flavor, and I can just imagine how fun it will be to take them to chefs and, um, you know, real foodies around the country and watch their eyes get wide open when they have a cocktail with it. Yeah, my best story, this, this actually fall happened. Um, we walked into a fairly... Um, fantastic, but also very exclusive kind of uh, hotel chain. Um, very big in the UK, you know, Miami, New York, Chicago, and beverage director flew from Miami to meet us um, and tasted our product within 15 minutes. Um, was talking about how we can get product to him in cans next summer, and it was—I um, mean—it's kind of mind-blowing. Uh, 
how you how one person can be super um, not only an advocate but just wants to help you champion the crap out of your products. So we're really, you know, who knows that might still happen. Wow, it's too bad <laughs> they didn't like the we'll bottles, but cans. Hey, could be, man. Well, when they're talking about you know that many places, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and that they it, they flew here to taste them or to talk to you? Well, he, we were one meeting that he was doing, but uh-huh. he requested the meeting. So um, Fantastic. Always nice to know that somehow you've made the ear of a, a pretty important beverage manager in, in trade and um, liked our product over the current one. So, right. Um, you know, that's always, it's just, it's validation. When you have those opportunities and, and you nail them, it's fantastic. Yeah. It, it, um, it keeps you going. Yeah, and you know what? I think a lot of small companies will just presume that somebody like that would not pay any attention to them, and so they don't even pursue them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So kudos to you for going after it. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, it comes down to just feeling confident enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we certainly have had equal levels of folks turn us down at, at, at you know, similar kind of hospitality side trade. Um, and we say, that's fine. You'll probably change your mind. In another mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of just, you've, you've got to go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Right. When, why are you doing this? No is just a word on the way to yes. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. This has got to be a really busy time of the year for you at Top Note. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and we're going to be watching what happens this year. Well, we hope to make you proud, so thank you so much for having us. Oh, well, thank you, and good luck with everything. Okay, thanks, Tara. Take care. Yes, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.